Thank you. Welcome to another episode of Empower Apps. I'm your host, Leo Dian. Today, I am joined by Gio Lodi. Gio, good to see you. Good to see you, Leo. Thank you for having me. All right. Well, I'll let you introduce yourself and uh, you, the book you have coming out pretty soon. Yeah. Well, hello, everyone. I'm Gio. I am a testing enthusiast. At the moment, I'm working as a mobile infrastructure engineer at Automatic. You might not have heard of Automatic, but I'm pretty sure you've heard of some of the products that we work on, like WordPress.com, Tumblr, WooCommerce. And if you are a listener of the show, not too long ago, Aaron Douglas was a guest talking about um, offline syncing. So you might be familiar with us already. Yeah, so you're the second automatic guest on the show. Awesome. Uh, that's pretty great. We call ourselves automaticians. <laughs> automaticians. <laughs> nice. Uh, do you mind saying what part of automatic you work in? Yeah, I, I work in the, in the apps division. And um, as a mobile infrastructure engineer, I work across apps. My team builds the tools that help uh, the other teams uh, ship quality code on a schedule. Gotcha, gotcha. All right, so this is, we're recording during WWDC week, so I have to ask, how many videos have you watched? Uh, Three. So I watched... um, that's a very honest answer. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I have a, I have a long list of the ones that I want to watch, but uh, I've been a bit um, busy with other things. So I just watched the um, the State of the Union, the keynote, and then the, um, I just sort of skipped through the Xcode Cloud uh, introduction. Okay, very cool. So yeah, in the last episode, I was talking with Peter about Xcode Cloud. That seems like a big deal as far as in the testing space is concerned. What have you like what's kind of your early thoughts on Xcode Cloud right now? It is super exciting. I'm I'm of two minds about it. I think uh, if I put my indie or developer that works in a small team hat, maybe working only on Apple platforms, that um, could be a really, really appealing uh, value added that Apple is providing because now everything is integrated into Xcode and uh, we always have some trouble provisioning the machines in the cloud to run continuous integration and maintaining. And uh, who can do that better than Apple? They have all the hardwares. They don't have licensing problems. They can put the beta straight away. If I recall correctly, they also run your test on betas already, if that might be an option to enable. But like uh, they can do all that for you. And uh, it would be really helpful. At the same time, for a larger team, I think um, from what I've seen, it's hard to say without actually trying it. But um, I fear that it might be still a bit too green for a large team that has very refined uh, automation workflows. Maybe they have um, shared configuration across platforms. So I don't see it yet as a viable solution for for larger teams but um yeah happy to be proven wrong and um very keen to see what the folks that will get their hands on the beta soon will will tell us were you ever familiar with build buddy at all before the purchase um yeah although i i never used it i know that it was highly regarded as a great solution by many folks in the community that i respect and i and trust but um yeah i never used it myself do you know if they ever supported Android? I have no idea. Okay. 
If somebody in the audience knows that, please let us know, because I'm really curious about that. Yeah, it's interesting. Over the last few days, I've heard the opinion that you've had where it's like, for indies, it's a good fit. But for enterprise, it might not be with existing infrastructure, which I find interesting because I would have thought the other way around. And the reason I say that is how much are they going to charge for it? Really? That's going to be what it comes down to. And then, and I don't know if they're going to do something where it's like, oh, if your income in the app store is less than kind of what they did with the cut, you know, you only have to pay it, whatever, $5 a month. But if you're a mega enterprise corporation, then you have to pay $25 per user per seat per app or something crazy like that. So I'll be interested to see how they're going to price that out. And then I want to look at the advanced configuration talk. I haven't looked at it yet, to be honest, but I'm curious about if this stuff can be edited outside of Xcode, because that would be my concern, is that it's all locked down into a GUI with some god-awful XML behind the scenes that's just going to make it really difficult to like can reconfigure when you want to. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like Every time there's a change to the project file, it is almost impossible to read. So you don't understand what's happening behind the scenes. So hopefully they, I don't know, maybe they delegate to a JSON file or something like a dedicated file that you can read and understand. That is a big concern for me too. Yeah. Hey folks, I wanted to let you know about a sponsor of our show, Revenue Cat. If you're doing anything with in-app purchases or subscriptions, you'll definitely want to check them out. Using RevenueCat to power your in-app purchase infrastructure solves for edge cases that you don't even know you have. It also protects you from outages your team hasn't even seen yet, and it saves you time on future maintenance and features released by the app stores. Plus, it empowers your product and marketing teams with clean, reliable in-app purchase data so they can make better decisions to grow your app. All that is to say, RevenueCat handles all the headaches of in-app purchases so you can get back to building your app. I highly recommend you check RevenueCat out at RevenueCat.com. Give it a try and see how it can empower your product and help it continue to grow. Thank you, RevenueCat, for sponsoring our show. And the other thing, too, is what kind of integrations they have, right? They mentioned Slack. What else could there be as far as like what Xcode Cloud integrates? Yeah, I I was actually researching it uh, yesterday and uh, I found that just looking at the docs, Xcode Cloud uh, already supports uh, GitHub, Bitbucket, and GitLab. So you can get your source code from that. In And that makes sense because that's supported in Xcode natively. Yeah. And in all those configurations like GitHub and GitHub Enterprise, like the self-hosted GitLab, all those kind of things. And uh, then it has five webhooks. Let me rephrase it. It exposes webhooks and you can uh, register five of those. I'm not sure why just five. I think maybe they don't want to open the doors too much while it's still in, in the beta, right? So I can imagine, I used to work in a team and we had this big LED colored light in the office. And whenever the test broke, the light would shine red. So you can do those sort of things. Yeah. So they have said there will be a REST API. We have no clue what it looks like yet. And I mean, Xcode Cloud, for for instance, is not even released yet. Uh, You have to sign up for the beta. But there will be a a REST API. And then I guess, what do you think about it being integrated with Xcode so tightly? Do you think that's a a good thing or could that be a hindrance? So I I made a joke the other day. 
in a talk at the Melbourne Coco Head meetup. And he was, would you trust Xcode to do all this for you in the cloud? Uh, those of us that have been working with Xcode for a long time tend to have this love, hate, uh, not trusting too much relationship. Of course, I'm joking like a uh, Apple has a lot of very smart people working on this, and uh, I'm sure they're going to iterate on it and make it really robust. I think if you like Xcode, there is a certain return of investment in uh, learning all the keyboard shortcut and becoming really comfortable within the IDE and not having to leave it. You are always in the same familiar interface. Uh, there is something to be said for removing the this little context switch of UI and tools. At the same time, Whenever we see tools that try to do a lot of things, they end up making compromises, they end up being bloated or confusing to use. Apple has a very good track record in doing software that is easy to use and, and polished with good interfaces, and I think Xcode is doing a good job at it. But um, yeah, look, I'm asking myself, is it just because I'm already comfortable with my workflow where I write in Xcode and I go on GitHub, then I check my uh, my CI in whatever service I'm using that I, I feel a bit of uh, friction for this? Or is there actually something there? I don't know. I guess we'll have to try. That totally makes sense. So um, before we jump into more of the new stuff that's come out this year, I want to talk about your book. So you have a book coming out, correct? Yeah. At the end of the month, we'll be releasing test-driven development in Swift. And um, as far as I know, is the only book that teaches you test-driven development uh, while building an app, a uh, Swift app with Swift UI and Combine. And uh, I second-guessed myself a few times while writing it. Like, have I shot myself in the foot? <laughs> like, uh, I don't know, I'm getting a warning in the console about this layout. What am I doing? Is it going to change? I, was, I, was, I kept a very close eye on all the testing news uh, this year because I was very worried that, like, ah, Apple is going to uh, introduce a completely new version of Exitest that changes everything, you know, the, the, <laughs> the Objective-C to Swift of, of Exitest. And... Um, make my book irrelevant already but no that wasn't the case so um, yeah uh, end of the month start of july uh, is gonna be available on on amazon and on apress.com that is the, the the publisher awesome but um yeah you will flick a, a link in the show notes but yeah you can find more about it on tddinswift.com yeah and we'll definitely have a link to that in the show notes We've uh, done an episode before on TDD uh, with some of the folks from Ray Winderlich, and I can't praise that methodology enough. What is your way of like convincing somebody who may be skeptical about TDD to adopt it? Yeah, I think uh, there's a lot of people that have been burned by trying test-driven development in a code base that wasn't um, structured for it. Like um, we have an existing code base that hasn't been written with testability in mind and uh, trying to add a test there for existing code is really painful because there's implicit dependencies in there, global state in the way. So I would definitely say if you want to try to write tests first, start with new code and become comfortable in that way. A lot of people think that test-driven development is about um, discovering bugs before they happen. And that is, uh, that is definitely true. 
But in my opinion, that is not the biggest advantage, the real value of this approach. The real value that I find in test-driven environment, the way I am test-infected, the way why I just want to work in this way, is because it allows me to move in small and fast iterations. At the, even just at the level of a function, I might iterate on its implementation four or five times while writing it. And um, I'm quite a lazy developer. I don't like to spin up the app in the simulator and click through all the UI to exercise the code that I want to exercise. And so having a test that calls that um, new method, that new object that, uh, that I'm working on is incredibly efficient for me. It really makes you move much faster. So I think um, that is a somehow not talked about enough value of test-driven development. It can really help you write code in a more pleasurable way because your feedback cycle is so much faster. Well, I was just going to say, like talking about the way it architects your app too. If you're using test-driven development, your code becomes a lot more agile when you want to modify it because you've already tested specific pieces and components of your code and you've allowed for that agility, hopefully, within your code so that you're testing only the individual pieces and not the whole structure, so to speak. Yeah, absolutely. There's this... um... This phrase that the folks at ThoughtBot, a um, software agency and that has done a lot of work in the testing space, mainly for Ruby on Rails, that they use NETs, testing, writing tests puts an helpful pressure on your code. Having to write the test for the code forces you to make the code um, smaller and uh, to avoid uh, implicit dependencies under the hood, because if they're there, you cannot test them. So it's sort of like uh, in the book, uh, I I try to make a, a similarity with natural selection. So the um, organisms that were more fit to survive, survived and thrived. And it's a bit the same with the code when you start writing it, with test first and is you want your test to be easy to write and to give you fast feedback so you're sort of incentivized to find a small code that is easy to test in a way that might not be immediately clear when you write a just production code uh, because you have everything accessible and you're testing it through the app that has already instantiated everything. You can access the global state. So you may not realize that you're introducing some source of complexity that is going to give you trouble in the future. Yeah, exactly. So if it's all right, I want to jump right into the Swift UI part of your book. What are some of the challenges that come with doing TDD when it comes to Swift UI specifically? So I had done a lot of research for the book to put together the, the proposal. And like I had this idea buzzing in my, in my head for a long time. And um, it was all based on, on UI kit. And um, as I said, someone that likes doesn't like to spin up the, the app, I had developed all my little tricks, uh, um, most of which uh, I should say I learned from from the community around uh, the internet, right, on 
how to test the view controllers and the UI view subclasses, UI button without uh, spinning them up in the app. And so you kind of develop this way of using test-driven development for the view layer as well. SwiftUI makes this not impossible, but uh, very, very complicated because if you try to inspect uh, the um, return value of the body property of, of a view, of a SwiftUI view at runtime, you get this um, blob of information described in a way that the SwiftUI runtime understands, but is not really made for developers. So, <laughs> Right, exactly. I struggled with that at first, and then I... I sort of went back to basics and tried to understand the, the theory behind SwiftUI. So SwiftUI, in SwiftUI, the view is a function of the state. And uh, a function of the state means that um, the view itself is stateless. The view is not an object. I'm pretty sure that you cannot define a view as a class. The compiler is not going to let you do it. It has to be a struct. It has to be... Yeah, a value type. So in a sense, SwiftUI makes testing easier because once you decouple the layout definition from all the business logic, all the layout um, population logic that you write, once you uh, split how the code that tells the view you should be this tall, this large, red here, black there, with the code that tells it, hey, your title is um, this and the rows in your list are those, then uh, you can trust that uh, once you give the SwiftUI view that you defined a certain state as its input, it is always going to render that state in the same time. So basically, SwiftUI frees you from all the testing necessity that you had on UIKit because in UIKit, you are configuring all the view and uh, it had state and methods that you could call on it. There's none of that in SwiftUI. You declare how the view looks like and then you feed state into it. And this allows you to write all your tests for the state. So you can iterate very quickly on the layout using previews and using uh, fake data in the the preview content, like the fake data that you feed to your, your preview. And you can iterate on the layout like that. And then you can use test-driven development to implement uh, all the logic that uh, generates the state that you feed to the layout. So that is really the, the trick for me is just letting go of wanting to write a unit test for the view layer and pushing all the intelligence into an isolated object that doesn't depend on SwiftUI. In the book, I call it view model as a not the MVVM architecture because it's very similar to that. You can give it the name that you want or you can try to adopt a different architecture. You can call it presenter, data, whatever. Just this logic that generates the state. Yeah, I mean, you hit it right on the nose. Don't test the view, test the logic that like sets the state. And I think that's where I've found, and I've talked about this in one of my talks about adapting combine for older like APIs, delegate APIs like court location. And what I've found is like you separate that out and that's where you use something like combine and then you test the combine publishers to see if the data is correct or whatever you want to use in that case. Yeah. 
And I think that's why you kind of get into a lot into your book about testing combine and making sure that the publishers and the subscribers and their logic is correct. I mean, I don't know. That's what it seems like to me is where a lot of this ends up going. Right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think we, with SwiftUI, with Combine, the Apple team, they've taken the burden of making a lot of glue code, a lot of pipings, you know, like the piping that send the water to the house. They are taking care of that and we can focus on writing our business logic. And um yeah, it's, um, it's liberating. Like I can focus on those things and don't worry about it. And um, actually to circle back on the, the test-driven development um, mindset or what practicing TDD gives you, that is another benefit that I find in, in test-driven development. It splits the way you write code. So um, test-driven development, uh, when you want to write a piece of code, you first write a test for it. And um, maybe you have like a, just an um, empty implementation for your function or you don't even have the function. And then the compiler is going to tell you, hey, this function doesn't exist. So you, you create a function. Once you get the code to compile, your test is going to fail because there's no logic yet in that function. So now your, your job, the game, is let's make the test pass with the simplest code that we can write. And uh, that code, again, it, it just the, the first that comes to mind, it doesn't have to be perfect. It just needs to make the test pass. And once the test uh, passes, once it's green, you can uh, change the code real quick and run your test again. And uh, if the test is still passing, then you are reasonably confident that like uh, that code works, at least from the point of view of, of the test. And uh, this is the, the refactor stage. So red, green, refactor. And then you keep looping around sort of like a spiral. Red, green, refactor, red, green, refactor, red, green, refactor. Yeah, it's a good way of putting it. Yeah. Um, I was hoping to make the cover of the book a spiral of arrows that, that go up, but uh, I couldn't draw it properly so what is the cover of the book i'm trying to remember uh the 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 book itself has a hummingbird in the cover a picture of a hummingbird that is the branding of uh, of the publisher for the swift uh, uh swift series okay so yeah i'm just the uh, one of the books in the in the series so i didn't have enough um enough clout to demand my own cover uh <laughs> next time, yeah next time. time but but Back to the thing. Um, sorry, I just want to add, add something else that is important for the listeners. Yeah, please do. You don't have to worry about writing good code when you're trying to make the test pass. You just want to make the test pass. And once you've done that, you can focus on writing good code. And uh, it's surprising how that uh, frees resources in your brain because you're not trying to do two things at, time, at the same time. There's no pressure. I need to write this code perfect because you just need to make the test pass. And then you can make it Perfect. Yeah. Hey, folks. I wanted to let you know again about one of our favorite sponsors of the show, AppFigures. AppFigures is a leading platform for mobile app makers to track and grow their apps. It's packed with tools for reporting, optimization, and competitive intelligence. If you're making money with, for instance, subscriptions, then you know you need to stay on top of your numbers. You also know whether it's Apple or Google, they might leave you with a lot to figure out. So luckily for us, AppFigures has worked all this out. By bringing your core metrics to the forefront and calculating key data sets like MRR or churn or whatever the stats you're looking for, they can make it easy to understand what's happening and why. 
and give you more time to grow your subscription business. If you're not sure where to get started in analyzing subscriptions, check out their guides or head to appfigures.com to start a free trial and see how much simpler it can be. If you like it, use our special code again, Empower3030 to get 30% off for the next three months. If you're looking at growing your indie app business or whether you're a big company who has an app in the app store and you need more exposure, you'll definitely want to check App Figures out. Again, give it a try. And then if you really like it, use our code Empower3030 to get 30% off for the next three months. Thank you so much, App Figures, for sponsoring our show. So one of the complaints, and I, I know the answer to this, but I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you anyway. My app it accesses the internet, it accesses the database. Uh, how am I supposed to test that? Because if that doesn't work, like my app won't work. Like I'll let you answer that, but I know I know the answer, but I want to let you you handle that one because I think people get really confused and they start they start getting confused with like integrating with other systems, and it's like. It is a common pain point uh, that uh, I have seen in um, code bases that uh, started writing tests, but um, for some reason didn't have access to the resources to learn how to write them in a air quote proper way. Again, air quote better way. It is <laughs> the your unit test. They're called unit tests for a reason. They should really focus on on only one one thing. One um, logical unit, one unit of, of work of, of your application, and uh, in particular, when practicing test-driven development, you want your feedback cycle to be as fast as possible. TDD has a lot of techniques and and um, and tricks and approaches to make your feedback cycle faster. So, having to make a, an HTTP request to talk with the network and having to deal with the just um, inherent um, entropy of the world and, uh, you know, your connection might drop, the server might be down, and the same goes for the database. Now, uh, we have optimization at the OS level that makes it fast, but you're still reading a file. So those are all things that make your feedback cycle not only slower because you need to do more stuff, but also less reliable because particularly in the case of the network, there are all these moving parts in between getting a result, asking for information and, and getting it back from the serv- from the backend that uh, can break your test and create a source of failure that is outside of your control. So a big part of um, test-driven development and of the book is around writing code that uh, doesn't directly depend on these, um, let's call them third parties, and that like uh, the network, uh, you can see it as a third-party dependency of your system, something that is outside of your control. And uh, Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the way we, we deal with them is uh, with uh, test doubles. So a test double is an object that... Um, replicates the functionality of a real-world dependency, but um, only for the purpose of testing. So you you can control... The term I've heard is mocks. Yep. Is that something different? Uh, the, um, it depends on who you ask. I refer... Uh, sorry, I brought it up. Yeah, yeah, no, that's a, that's a great, that's a great uh, segue or, or tangent or rabbit hole to go into. Uh, I refer to the terminology <laughs> uh, defined in the XE unit 
patterns. Uh, it is a book and a website. I'll try to grab a link for the show notes. And um, test doubles, there is the umbrella term for all the different types of um, object dedicated for the purpose of testing that you can build. And the, the mocks are one flavor of test double. Alongside the mocks, we have the stabs, the fakes, the dummies. So the, the, there's different types. I cover them in the book. I like these names. Yeah, yeah. Fakes, dummies, stubs. Yep. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they, they, they're very apt names. They, they give you an idea of what <laughs> things do. I try to stare away from the term mock because I find it's overloaded with meaning and is not clear what you're actually referring to. In the X-unit patterns terminology, a mock is an object that you use to record the behavior of a dependency. So um, say that... uh, you, you, you want to make sure that a certain function had been called when you call another. Yeah, exactly. And and on top of that, you run assertion on the mock. So um, let's say that you use oh, this okay. mock for to uh, replace the dependency on the network. You would uh, build your object, pass the network mock into it, then um, act on your object under test, the SUT, the system under test, and then let it do its thing, and your assertions to know whether the test passed or not would be methods that you call on the mock itself, something like a network mock dot um, did receive a get call with URL, something along those lines. And um, did make post, did make get, did make whatever. Yeah, put, yeah, yeah. Gotcha. And and I feel those. Uh, add a lot of infrastructure that you need to build, especially in um, in Swift, where uh, we cannot generate mocks at runtime dynamically like you could have done in Objective C or you doing in Ruby or JavaScript. I try to differentiate between a stub and a spy. So the the stub is an object that you use to provide um, input to the system under test. So again, in the case of testing a a network request, and um, you might want to verify that um, when the the backend sends you an error, you translate it to the appropriate error in the domain of the app. And so you can build a, a stub and you can say, hey, stub, return this error, and then feed the stub to your networking client that you're testing. And then the test is at the networking client level. You don't ask the stub, hey, did you get asked for something that returned an error? You just check whether the networking client uh, spits out the error that you expect. And the, the spy is the, is the opposite. You use a stub to control the input. You use a spy to record an output. So let's say you have a analytics layer in your app. And you want to make sure that uh, when the user uh, hits the purchase button, an event uh, is logged to your analytics provider. You can replace the real analytics provider code in the test because you don't want to send events from your test. You can replace it with with a spy. And uh, that spy, when the certain method to log the, the event gets called, stores the payload in an instance variable. And then your test would um, exercise the method that corresponds to the button being pressed and then check that um, the payload that the spy recorded 
has the properties that you expect. That makes total sense. I didn't know there were so many different types of test doubles as you refer to them. That's really cool. And important things that I didn't uh, uh, specify while introducing uh, these test doubles is in Swift, they all rely on protocols. So basically, th- this is another complaint that you might get. It's like, huh, now I need to define a protocol just for the sake of, of testing because right. I, I wouldn't have... Especially for Objective-C folks, because like you said, you can change all that stuff in runtime. Yeah, yeah. And um, to an extent, it is true that uh, probably if you didn't have to write tests, you wouldn't have defined a protocol to wrap uh, this type. But I would argue that, uh, again, test puts put an helpful pressure on your code. And uh, having to define protocols for the interfaces between the different layers, the different uh, components of your system is actually a very good thing to do. It is an implementation of the dependency inversion principle, which says, right, uh, I hope not to get it wrong. The dependency inversion principle says that uh, higher level modules uh, should not depend on lower level modules. They should depend on abstractions and that uh, the modules should not know about each other. They should just uh, have abstractions in between. The The practical advantage of this is that you can change uh, the implementation and even the actual concrete type that you provide to a module seamlessly, transparently, because it is behind the uh, this abstraction, this interface, this um, technical in Swift, this protocol. And uh, in particular, when it comes to that uh, analytics provider or like uh, your third-party library that does um, what have you, having your own domain wrapper around it is leaves a lot of doors open to you. Because if, I don't know, your analytics provider, Google buys them and they don't work anymore, you can find another one. And the only thing... They charge an extra 20 bucks. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The only thing you need to do is change the implementation behind that protocol. You don't need to update the, the consuming code. Right. No, I'm totally on board with protocol-oriented programming. I feel like that goes hand in hand with this stuff. One of the things I was going to ask was specifically when it comes to combine, what have you found are some easier ways to do testing in that space when it comes to making sure your publishers and subscribers work out correctly? Yeah, good good question. Good question. Nothing comes to mind when it comes to uh, subscribers. I have played around just a tiny bit with them. But um, for what concerns the publishers, again, you need to understand how they work from the point of view of testing them. And so a publisher, in a sense, is nothing more than an asynchronous piece of code. And to which... Uh, or a series of asynchronous code, yeah. Um, well, it, it works asynchronous and it can send out one value or, or a series of, of value. From the point of view of testing, you can use your existing toolkit of um, to test asynchronous code, so all the XCT expectation APIs. And um, and the, the trick being that you need to you need to subscribe, you need to add your test class as a subscriber of your publisher. So in the sync, you add your closure there and it is in that in that at that level that you can add your assertion to verify what the, the publisher is sending to you. 
Yeah, and what I've found is like setting it up kind of like what you're saying with protocols where it's like you want this to create a publisher which will take two inputs and merge them in a specific way. And that's what you want to test. You want to test that merging is done correctly. Data is, isn't what you expect. Or, well, I guess the data is what you expect, but you assume that the publisher and the combined works correctly. It's that your math, I guess, your functional programming is correct in how you combine that data. And that's what you want to Absolutely. test. Absolutely. And uh, uh, you, you touched a bit on this topic in your episode with, oh gosh, his name escapes me right now, uh, with Dim Sum Thinking. Dim Sum Thinking. Oh, uh, Daniel. Daniel, uh, Daniel, there you go. Yeah, there you yeah, go. Because he has that book. He has two books. He has a book on functional programming and on uh, combined. So, yeah. Daniel is a great writer, a great speaker, a great thinker. I, um, I'm so sorry that I sort of blanked on his name right now. I hope if he listens to this, he'll forgive me. I, um, yeah, I really follow what he, what he writes and uh, I really like it. And, uh, I don't remember if you went into the details in, in the, in the podcast episode or not, but, um, it goes back a bit to what we said before that, um, Apple takes care of the plumbing for us. So if you can structure the code that uses combine as a series of steps through pure functions, so through functions that uh, don't depend on uh, global state outside and don't perform side effects, so they don't depend and don't change the global state of the app, then um, you don't need to write a test for all the combination of all your functions because you can just test them all in isolation and uh, and you'll be fine. But yeah, I mean, like you're saying, you don't want to test like the plumbing that you know is going to work when it's... If it doesn't work, that's a bug. That's where your feedback yeah, system Yeah, comes exactly. In. And um, you almost... It's good to know when something doesn't work and maybe you can write a test for the workaround that you put in place, but uh, you can't... If it doesn't work, you, you can't open the source of combine and fix it. So there's also that lack of agency. Yeah, I've I've been in situations I've done a lot of combine over the last year or two and like figuring out that oh like running a unit test against my publisher factories or publicists as I like to call them um to make sure that like oh I did a share right or I did a multicast right or I did a, a flat map right you know it's super helpful in those cases and it's it's really paid off Hey folks, it's that time of the year again where I would love to get some input from you, my audience members. Please go to the show notes below and go to the Typeform survey I have set up to get some input from you as far as Empower Apps, the show, and where you think are some of its strong points and where it could use improvements. Please take the time, please share it with others that you know and fill this survey out. Would really appreciate it. I'm looking for folks to fill this out as soon as they can. It just takes a few moments. Go to the link in the show notes below. And if you have any questions, feel free to reach out to me on Twitter. You can DM me or you can send me an email, leo at brightdigit.com. If you have any questions about the survey, thank you so much for doing this. And thank you so much for being an audience member of this show. And thanks again for your support. So I want to ask, there's been a lot of wailing and gnashing of teeth on Twitter because we haven't had a combined talk this year, but we've had a lot on async and await. Uh, what's your thought on the future of combine and the future of async and await? That's a great question. 
I know a lot of folks have a mixed feeling about it. I think I'm still in um, in awe for what uh, they they've done with the async await pattern and how it simplifies so many things in in uh, dealing with asynchronous code that uh, I haven't um, I haven't spent enough time thinking oh, how is the code that we're gonna write looking in the future. I have a feeling that uh, there is still a space for combine so that combine is not going to go anywhere because look i haven't gotten my hands dirty with async await other than trying to understand how to write tests for code written this way but um there is structured concurrency and you can uh, have like um again concurrent async um, request a piece of code running at the same time but um it didn't seem to me like uh, it solved the same problem that combine does and that is putting together possibly multiple streams of events over time and um, piping them through and do all this very neat functional chaining of um, pure function and data transformations that we that we just talked about. So I think there's, yeah. there's still... I feel like async, async in a way is about the one-off, like, I want to make one networking call. I don't need to, like do a bunch of plumbing like combine gives me. And that's where I feel like it really makes sense. And I feel like combine is really all about that. Like you said, multiple streams of data, reactive programming, that kind of stuff. That's where really combine fits in. To be honest with you, I never have, I haven't gone into like a WWDC year since combine's been introduced wanting something. <laughs> I, I don't know what is, what is missing from combine that we're, we're, we're expecting from Apple. I feel like combine pretty much does everything I want it to do. And if it doesn't, it's not like not that hard to make, to make it something. happen become combined yeah yeah i think uh, we are definitely in a um what a time to be alive we have all these uh great tools and uh, swift is so versatile while at the same time being so safe uh thanks to the compiler and, and the type system that um someone that uh, leans more towards the functional programming style can write an app in swift in that way with this. And the same goes for someone that he maybe likes more straight object-oriented programming. And um, the two things can live at the same time in, um, maybe not in the same app, but in the same Swift ecosystem because the language has all the, um, the tools to do it. Yeah, I think that's what it is. It depends question in its most it depends way. Yeah. Where it's like, it depends what situation you're in. Like, do you need the reactive plumbing or do, are you just, or do you need like just an actor type with like async and await and all that stuff? It really does depend on the situation. Yeah. It's the story of software development, right? It's always that. <laughs> it depends. Right. It depends. Yeah. I mean, uh, the the thing I think that you know has come out over the last few days is that if you're doing anything on an older platform that's not going to be coming out in fall you cannot do async and await so like that's where like okay maybe it's worth doing combined what i would i think puzzles me is like okay what if you write an app that you want to support or even a swift package that you want to support the older platforms what can you do to like still use async and await and somehow have some scaffolding so that you can use you know what I mean? Like it can get really messy. So I think those are my concerns more with async and await than actually async and await. Yeah, a, a friend of mine here in Melbourne has been 
working uh, on a library. It's called uh, um, Combine Asynctually, I, I think. Uh, we'll we find the link again, and uh, which is sort of helps you wrap uh, async calls into Combine, um, I'm guessing, publisher, like into sort of lift them to the combined land. He, he demonstrated yesterday uh, this meetup that I attended. And um, yeah, big disclaimer, this is all beta code. Like uh, that is likely, they already announced a change in the syntax to like uh, uh, something that you are in this beta calling with async uh, curly braces. You call with task uh, dot async or maybe just task curly braces. So like, uh, yeah, it is maybe like the early days of, of Swift where like it was the syntax was changing and changing like beta after beta. So have you looked at any of the testing stuff when it comes to async and await? Yeah, I actually published a post a few days ago and um, something interesting for testing uh, asynchronous code in exit test is there are all these APIs you kind of need to add um, to trick the test runner into wait for your code, but not to stop the thread with the sleep because otherwise your code doesn't run. Whereas because async await is built in the language, the way you write a test for, for some async call is you just call it with try await, like you would do in, in production. So testing asynchronous code in the async await world is not something that you would Google anymore because you just do it the same way that you write a synchronous code in production is very straightforward. That's awesome. Yeah, it's very great. Yeah, that's really awesome. Like you don't have to do the wait for expectations and all that stuff. No, uh, you, yeah, you just um, let um, result equal, try await um, function that spits a result. And that's it. Is there like a timeout though? What if it never finishes? I don't know. This is a question that has come up a few times, and I don't have an answer for that. I, I bet it has. Yeah, there's an example in the in the um, in the documentation for for async await to to sleep uh, to you know to add a delay in the um, function that is asynchronous, and I I put that code in my Xcode and it, and the code crashed. So so I I don't know. <laughs> I I don't know what happens. I assume there's gonna be some timeout at some point in i was looking at test plan or task has a timeout property to it or something so that way you can specify when when it just fails because it never finishes yeah i'm pretty sure there is something like that and i just don't know where it is in the unlikely occurrence that there isn't i would say there isn't yet because um a lot of people are asking this question so like uh, if there isn't yet uh, apple is gonna build something for that for sure yeah so one of the talks I looked at today was the one on uh, expecting failures. Yep. Uh, I don't know if you've seen this, yeah, yeah. Uh, but this is really cool. Um, so I'm like in the process of updating some old Objective-C code and moving it over to Swift and kind of setting up that scaffolding. And some of it's not done. Okay. But the idea that I could at least have this like ex write the test and expect the failure Knowing that I'm not like like you said, kind of in that first step of TDD, but then still let the CI go on is really interesting. I mean, that's what it seems like is the use case. Is if you're like in the middle of 
of a feature, you can have the expect failure and it's not going to like cancel out the whole test. Is that correct? Yeah. Expect failure is a super neat API. If you dig into the document. And I want to make, I want to just say it's available now. Like you don't need a beta yeah. for it. It's in 12.5, yeah. which is awesome. Yeah. Yeah. It's one of those ones that uh, they, they sneak into in the like latest version of Exit, but they announce a uh, WWDC. Um, it has it is very versatile, um, and if you look at the header and the documentation, the type signature, there are different versions of XCT expect uh, failure. So what it does, it allows you to. It tells the test runner to yeah expect a failure. So if the test uh, fails, Xcode is not going to mark that test as a failure. It's going to mark it as a known failure. Visually, it appears as. Um, so a fail test has the red diamond with the with the white X inside. This is a grayed out uh, version of, of that diamond. And is, um, it looks similar to the skipped test, where, uh, but the skipped test has like a jumping arrow. And this one has just the X of the failure. Yeah. And something cool is by default... Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, that visual component, there is some research that um, that I saw a long time ago and that I can't really find a link for right now. But uh, there is some research that says, like, uh, yeah, the red makes you, like, uh, uncomfortable in a way that pushes you to, you, you want to make it green as soon as you can. Um, the, the, there is something to it. And the gray, I find, is very appropriate as a, as a m- middle ground. If your test in which you defined that you should declare that you're expecting a failure actually doesn't fail, so if the test passes, the expect failure is gonna fail. So this is this is a bit uh, is it, very confusing to to say, but like uh, when you see it, it makes a lot of sense. That's a great way. Yeah, it makes total sense because it makes it makes you to move move it and uh, get rid of that expect failure, and now you have a working test. Um, yeah, that's awesome. And um, that is really in line with the idea that um, tests are a living documentation of your understanding of what the system does. And when a test fails is a signal to to the developer that uh, there is a discrepancy between what the system does and what they declared it should do through the test. And um, that is that failure. There are a few more advanced, I wouldn't maybe not advanced, but like a few more configuration that you can uh, use um, expect failure with. So um, we just said that it's going to fail if the test passes, but you can disable the this strict mode. So if you, maybe you're dealing with a flaky test that uh, you don't have the time to fix right now, but you don't want the entire test suite to fail because of that, you can um, expect the failure, but not in strict mode so that um, if it passes, is okay. We knew it was a flaky test. You can also drill down into the failure the, the type itself is an XCT issue that um, XCT has received at, at runtime to maybe you want to check that the error message, the, the failure message rather that you received uh, is the one that you expect because otherwise uh, it could be a different oh, wow. kind of failure that you didn't know about. And you can also wrap uh, code that throws into an um, XCT expect failure because otherwise... Um, the throwing mechanic is a bit different from a usual test failure, so you can handle that as well. Now, there is one concern that I have with this incredibly neat API, 
and uh, it is it sounds like um, almost too powerful in a sense i fear that uh, it is going to be easy to misuse it and just log a lot of technical depth a lot of xct expect failure in your in your code base so the example that you gave yeah but i mean Folks could just comment out their tests. Yeah, exactly. Like, let's be exactly. honest. It, like, it is true. It's like a, that's already been there. Yeah. So, definitely. like, yeah. I mean, if you really want to go and do ex- expect failure, like, okay. Like, if you don't want to do commenting out, okay. Like, yeah. It, there's going to be when there's laziness. There's laziness. There's nothing that's going to get. It right is now. true. You 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 called out my my straw man argument. It's true. Uh, <laughs> there were already ways to to forget about tests. That, <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Um, did you want to talk about uh, test repetitions or test plans yeah, before sure. we close out? Um, test repetition are, are pretty cool too. It is another feature that, uh, again, could be misused because it allows you to just them. Okay, what the, what is test repetition? Test repetition is a new configuration option in a, in a test plan. Uh, so test plan is a scheme on steroids uh, is a um, definition of um, you can so out of the box uh, xcode will create a test target and um, you can run the test through a scheme and uh, in the scheme you can enable a few options like uh, run your test in random order which i really recommend you can disable a few tests if that you may want to run there's a few configurations that you can do that the test plan allows you to add more configurations. So you can run your test uh, through the same plan. You can run them in one locale. You can run them in a different locale. You can simulate certain condition. And now with Xcode 13, you can add the test repetitions. So there are four test repetition mode. One is none. So just run them and tell me what they did. The other one is until failure. So it's going to run your test uh, up to three times until one fails. This is useful to discover flaky tests. So I would say if you have in particular UI test suite, it might be handy to have a maybe a CI task that uh, once a day runs it through the repeat until failure configuration just to be sure that is that is robust. Then there is the repeat on failure mode, which is the exact opposite. If one test fails, it's going to run it again. And this is useful when you have flaky tests and either they are inherently flaky, maybe you have an integration test suite that is talking with the network, and so sometimes it might fail, or when uh, you know that they're there, but you don't have the time to, to fix them, and you don't want them to be a blocker for some CI pipeline where they are. The final one is repeat until maximum repetition. So again, it is going to run your test three times, regardless of the result, and it's going to tell you, hey, two out of three, past that's 67%. And um, that is useful, I think, to diagnose, uh, so to triage a fix for a flaky test. You say, hey, I think I fixed it. Let's run it a bunch of times to see if it's actually stable. One thing I'll say is three times is not that statistically relevant. Is just three times. I dealt with a flaky test that I had to run 20 times to get one, one failure out of them. So I hope they'll give us a way in the future to bump that number up. So it's locked at three? Yeah. Uh, as far as I could see in Xcode 13, 
uh, .o beta 1, that number is grayed out. Um, so it, the UI didn't let you change it. I have to say I didn't look into the test plan file itself to see if maybe you can change it from there. I'll have to, I'll have to look into that later. That's really interesting. Okay. Wow. We've covered a lot today. Thank you so much for coming on. Gio. Thank you. It's really been great. And I've loved, I'm so glad to have somebody come on and cover this important topic about TDD and SwiftUI and, and combine. Um, where can people find you? My landing page on the internet is geo.codes. That's uh, G-I-O dot uh, codes, C-O-D-E-S. I blog at uh, mochacoding.com. Um, I won't spell it because it'd be too long. And you can find me on Twitter at uh, MokaGio, M-O-K-A-G-I-O. And the name of the book is TDD and Swift, correct? Yeah, I, I think Google would find it if you do TDD and Swift. The, the actual name is Test Driven Development in Swift, just to be um, yeah, v- verbose and have... Uh, we'll have the link in the show notes. Do you have any... Uh, I, sh- I have to ask, do you have any promo codes for any of our No, audience? I... Um, because I'm not public, I'm not self-publishing. I'm going through a publisher. Uh, I don't yeah. have access to, okay. to to promo codes, but I have a page. Uh, I'll send you the link uh, where you can sign up and um, receive some bonus content about the book. So awesome! Yeah, that'd be fantastic. Thank you so much. We really appreciate that. Yeah. When's the release date? The ebook is going to be out on the third of July. And the, the the paperback should be out on the twenty third of June, but that may depend on where you are in in the world. Um, we are finalizing doing the last uh, fixes in, in in the proofs, and um, yeah, it depends on where you are in the world. Thank you so much. This is exciting. It's really exciting. This is your first book, right? It, it is. Yeah, it's been a process. That's awesome. Well, thank you again for coming on the show. Thank you, Leah. People can find me on Twitter at Leo G. Dion. My uh, business is Bright Digit. Please take some time to subscribe and like on YouTube if you're watching on there or uh, give us a review on Google Podcasts or Apple Podcasts. I have to remember what they call it right now. Spotify, uh, Audible, wherever you're listening to it. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode. Please take some time to fill out our uh, audience survey too. I'd really appreciate that. You'll see a link in the show notes. Thank you so much. And I look forward to talking to you again. Bye.